can grab a seat. And as you do, I'd encourage you, invite you to uh, take out a copy of Scripture. If you have a Bible with you, you can get that out, turn that on, open it up. If you don't have one, or if you maybe want to follow along with the translation we're going to be in, it's ESV, um, I'd encourage you to grab one of the Bibles underneath one of the seats in front of you. And we are continuing in our series in Daniel, and so you can open up to the book of Daniel. Um, you're going to, um, uh, if you don't know where that is, uh, that table of contents will get you there there, uh, but I'd love for you to see it for yourself. I mean, I say this um, most weeks. Um, I, I want you to see it for yourself every single week, but this week especially, um, we've got some work to do, church. Uh, we are continuing in Daniel, and if you've been here, then you know kind of where, uh, where we're at or what we're going, but just to catch you up, um, we've been walking through the book of Daniel together as a church, and we have been, um, we're six weeks in, so we've covered the first six chapters, and now uh, we're going to be um, looking at chapters seven and eight this morning, so we're kind of up in the speed, um, which uh, seemed like a good idea back when we planned the series. Uh, this week, I was like doubting it a little bit. I'm like, man, why did we do two weeks at one or two chapters at once? There's a lot of content that we're going we're gonna to cover this morning, but we're going to see a vision uh, this morning of the throne. And so we are in Daniel chapter seven and eight. And I'll just tell you off the bat, um, you, uh, this is going to be a little different of a type of passage that we typically study. Um, admittedly, um, we don't like spend a ton of time in prophecy. But here's one of the things that is a conviction for us as a church is that we want to see the whole counsel of God's word, right? We believe every page, every word, every sentence is inspired and given to us by God, and it's helpful. It's, it, it teaches, it, it, it directs us in that. And so we are in Daniel 7 and 8, and this is what we're coming to is uh, kind of a move away from what Daniel has been, which is narrative, and then moving into uh, what is prophecy. So this is prophetic literature. It is telling of what is yet to come. And that's what prophecy is. It's, it's the, the, the sharing, telling of things that have not yet occurred uh, when they were given. And so here's the thing, though. We don't want to just skip over these verses, which honestly, for the book of Daniel, is oftentimes the case. Uh, a lot of times, and maybe that's been the case for you, you're familiar with the stories of chapters 1 through 6, but you haven't necessarily spent maybe the same time studying the prophecies of chapters uh, 7 through uh, the end. And so what we're coming to here is prophecy. But here's the reality of our Bible is this, is that one-fourth of the Bible is prophecy. Think about that for a second. I don't know if we often think about just the, the scope of that, but, but a fourth of our Bible is telling of things that yet had not yet occurred when they were uh, written. And oftentimes when that happens, that prophecy tells of things that are near and going to happen, and then far off, like kind of the end of times and going to happen. And we spend a lot of time talking about some of those near things, Right? Even take, let's take the birth of Jesus. Right? It was prophesied that he was going to be born. We have a day in our calendar that we still, to this day, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. We take time in our uh, services. Right, We had Advent not too long ago, and we have all this study around the birth of Jesus. Well, did you know that every time, that, that for every prophecy of Jesus' first coming, there are eight more that talk about his second coming? And so we want to look at prophecy, and we want to see uh, what God's word has for us in that. And I, I believe this, that it honestly, if you spend the time and are willing to do some work, it's not that hard. At the same time, it is going to get a little crazy, okay? So if you brought your seatbelt, go ahead and just like buckle up, put it on. All right, church, we got some work that we're going to do here, okay? I'm just giving you fair warning. 
I'm going to talk quickly. We're going to make it through a lot. We're going to look at a ton of verses. Like, this is, you, you came to work this morning. You didn't know that, but this is like a little extra, extra work this morning. And I promise we can do it. Like, when we're done, you're going to be able to look back at these chapters and you'll be like, yeah, I see what God is doing in those chapters. And if I was just to give you one thing that you walk away from this morning, you're going to see this, that Jesus is awesome. All right? Hopefully that happens a lot. But today especially, you're going to see Jesus is awesome in this passage. And, and you're going to get this picture of the throne. And so just to kind of set us up, Daniel, he's writing this. Okay, he's recording this. And we've seen Daniel through his whole life, right? He was brought to Babylon when he was a teenager. He's now spent the better part of six, almost seven decades there. He's in his 80s. Well, he's writing this toward the end of his life. But what these are are kind of flashbacks to visions that he had when he was younger. And so the first one, actually both of them one that we're looking at today, happened during the reign of Belshazzar. If you remember, Belshazzar was who we looked at in chapter 5 just a couple weeks ago. So Nebuchadnezzar, his grandson, Belshazzar, these visions took place there. So he's writing about them later, but he's kind of looking back, and here's what I dreamed. Here's what I had this vision of, um, you know, some... Uh, time before uh, this. So chronologically, we're kind of taking a jump back uh, in that. Um, all right, are we ready to go? You find it? Ready? Okay, everyone say, I'm ready. 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 Okay, you said it. Let's go. Uh, verse 1, chapter 7, here we go. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. So again, before we go too, too far, we're going to see a dream. It's a vision. Not every dream is from the Lord. Not every dream tells of what is going to come. This was a special dream, special vision given to Daniel. This was unique uh, for this kind of time. And it was more than just sort of like, man, what did I eat? Like, I shouldn't do that again. Like, this, was, this is a, a vision from the Lord, okay? Here's the vision, verse 2. We're going to see some beasts, four of them. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Okay, so there's this chaos in the sea. And out of the sea, four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. All right, each is unique. Here's the beast. Here's the descriptions. Verse four. The first was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. Then I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. You're going to notice lots of like likes and as and sort of like, you know, similar to this kind of language. All right, he's kind of describing it using the best sort of pictures that he can with words and images that we have. Verse five, behold, another beast, so this is the second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. Okay, Verse six, after this, I looked and behold another like a leper, uh, leopard rather, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. And after this, I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. And it had great iron teeth and it devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had 10 horns and I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. All right, let's just kind of, let's catch our breath here, okay? <laughs> There's a lot going on, all right? We got four beasts. Uh, we got that winged lion. We've got the, uh, the lopsided bear. Uh, we've got the, um, uh, the leopard with four wings. And then we've got some 
fourth beast, which is so fantastical, like you can't even describe it, but it's terrifying. It's dreadful. All right. Let me just kind of give you the truth that I think we're going to see right off the bat, and, and, then, and then I want to kind of fill, fill this in here. It's this. God is giving a picture of the kingdoms that are to come. Each of those beasts represent kingdoms and kings. And so what he's trying to show Daniel is this, is that God knows and directs our past, present, and our future. All right, he is unlike us in this way. He knows and directs our past, present, and our future. And so what, Dan, what he's showing Daniel, there's actually some present stuff that's in that, that vision. There's some things that are coming in the short term, and then there's things that are coming like way off, and all of it is sort of built on history, okay? And so you have this past, present, and future knowledge that God is showing Daniel, all right? And um, we're going to get some interpretation. So what I'm going to do, I'll just kind of, you know, just kind of telling you what I'm doing so that you can kind of follow along. I don't want to lose anyone this morning, all right? So we'll have a couple of times to jump back on the train. If you kind of fall off, just hang on. We're going we're gonna to get there together. But chapter 7 kind of overlaps with chapter 8. It's not a direct correlation, but there's some overlapping. So we're going to kind of bounce back and forth between chapter 7 and chapter 8. One thing that's going to help you tremendously, if you were here when we looked at Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, chapter 7 overlays very similarly with the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. Here's how we know that. Look at verse 15 of chapter 7. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. <laughs> you think, right? That's like, I find myself saying that a lot. As every scripture is like, yeah, that's, it's just kind of like, sometimes scripture just states the obvious. Like, I was freaked out, okay? Verse 16, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. He's like, hey, you have wings. Can you tell me what's going on? That's, that's, what, that's what just happened there. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. And here's the interpretation. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. And then it goes on to kind of talk about the fourth, but it seems to satisfy Daniel's curiosity. And here's why. I think Daniel picks up on the fact. He's like, oh, I've been down this road before. Remember the statue? It had four different medals, and, and, and now and those each represented four different kingdoms. So you're telling me these four beasts represent four kings that are coming, and then there's going to be one that's going to last forever and ever? I think there's this direct correlation that is happening and going on there. Furthermore, that's going to be confirmed, again, not for another two years for Daniel, but in chapter 8, just a page turn for us, it actually does unpack a couple of these, these things. So let me just kind of, let's, let's get some definitions here. This will help us. Okay, so the first of the four beasts was the lion with eagle wings. Does anyone want to just kind of go out on a limb, be super bold, and guess who or what does that represent? Lion with eagle's wings. Anyone? Anyone? Babylon, yes. It's a great answer. It's exactly right. Babylon, specifically, we see kind of even images representing Nebuchadnezzar. So this is the current reality, or rather the past that Daniel has been in. He is in Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar has lived and at this point has died. And so you see the lion with wings. And this actually probably would have been a bit of a layup for Daniel to understand because they've excavated part of Babylon. They've actually found gates with winged lions on them. They're actually on display in museums today. You can see them. Um, so the winged lion sort of represented the Babylonian empire. And so in this, in this dream, Daniel sees it, and he's like, oh, that's Babylon. 
Furthermore, Nebuchadnezzar, do you remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? He was humbled by God. And it says that the wings were plucked off, right? So there's this humbling, this humility that happens. And then it says that he was raised up, given like to stand on two feet and given the mind of a man. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was restored and ultimately declared that God is ultimately God, right? This all happened uh, previously in the book of Daniel. So that's the first beast. It is the Babylonian empire. The second is the lopsided bear, okay? So if you remember the statue, the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, the next was the silver arms and chest, represented the two, two sort of arms, were the Medo-Persian army, all right? And that is... Uh, the, 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 what is yet to come. This has not happened, but it's only a few years off. And so Daniel is going to get to watch this happen in his lifetime. The Medo-Persian army is going to come in and overthrow the Babylonian empire. And it's lopsided because maybe you remember studying uh, history, all whatever years that may have been for you, and you probably didn't learn a lot about the Medo-Persian em- uh, empire. You probably learned a lot about the Persian empire, right? The Persian Empire sort of rose to prominence. And so the bears kind of lopsided, one side higher than the other, because the Persians sort of overtook the Medes, and they sort of faded out in that. But that's the kingdom that's coming next. And so again, Daniel's getting this picture into what is going to happen. Now we can try to drill down on more, like if you want to double-click on the, um, uh, the, the ribs and the mouth of the bear, like you can kind of geek out on this stuff. And some of it, honestly is just a little bit of speculation. Like, we have the privilege now of looking back on history and trying to connect dots. So there's a few dots we could connect. There's some, there's like three, like, prominent victories that happened for the Medo-Persians. There's three rulers that were overthrown, you know, so it might be one of those, but we don't really know on that part, and we don't have nearly the time to, like, do all of that. So that's not helpful for us. We're going to kind of, we're going to stay a little bit higher level on that. But the bear arose, overtook the uh, lined, uh, the, the winged lion, and he says, arise, devour much flesh. All right, so we're on the third. Here's what happens next. It's a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. All right, what do you think of when you think of a leopard? Go. Leopard. Fast. Yes, that's what I was looking for. Fast, speed, right? If you see a leopard, you could run, but it's not going to do you any good, okay? They're gonna, it's going to catch you. They are the, like the fastest, you know, kind of runners that, uh, you know, you think of the speed of that. Um, add to it four wings. Now you've got like a super fast leopard, all right? So what happened is that what comes next, the bronze um, sort of uh, waist was uh, that, or the thighs was the Grecian army, okay? The Greeks. And again, remember back to history and what you may have studied, the Greeks were led in conquest by... Alexander the Great. It was a super fast conquest. I mean, unlike any that's ever been seen before. In 10 years, he overtook the entire sort of known connected empire of like overthrowing the Persians. And so it was so fast, the Greeks are overtaking this. And so there you have this leopard, which is kind of going. Now it says that this leopard also had four heads and dominion was given to it. Super unique about, we're going to kind of get geek out a little bit on Alexander the Great in just a minute, but one of the things that's kind of unique about Alexander the Great, he was so young that he died early, he was like 33, there was no heirs to give the kingdom to, and so it was divided up among four primary leaders, rulers, over the empire. And so there you have this kind of fast conquest, then divided up among four heads, 
Are we with this? Still together? All right? All right, and then we have the fourth. This one is where it kind of gets a little crazy, right? He doesn't even say what it is. He's just like, it's dreadful, it's terrifying, it's exceedingly strong, it had iron teeth. You might remember back to the iron toes of the uh, statue that King Nebuchadnezzar, that was Rome, all right? So you have the Roman Empire, which followed. And so you have this, this progression of history, uh, kind of Babylonian, taken over by the Persians, taken over by Greece, taken over by Rome. All of this, like the, Greece, the Greeks are about to come, they're 200 years out from when Daniel's writing this thing. It's incredible. But what God is doing is he's pulling back the curtain. He's saying, listen, I know the past. I know the present reality, and I know your future. God is trying to show him that he is in control. All right, so what I want to do is just kind of overlay chapter 8 onto this as well. Scan over to chapter 8. Look at verse 1. It says this, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. So this is two years later. After that, which appeared to me at the first. So second vision. And what did he see? He was in Susa the, the, um, uh, he was in Susa the citadel. This is in the province of Elam. So he, in the vision, he was in Susa. Crazy thing is, again, like still a decade out, this is where the Medio Persian army sets up their capital. So he envisions himself there in Susa. This is where the Persians are going to set up camp. He raised his eyes and he saw, and behold, a ram on the bank of the canal, and it had two horns. Both the horns were high. All right, this should be giving some clues. There's two of them. Both the horns were high, but one was higher than the other. All right, so you have a lopsided ram. So this is, again, the Medo-Persian. I saw the ram charging westward, northward, southward. No beast could stand. There was no one who could rescue him from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. So this is, again, another uh, vision of the Medo-Persian army coming. We know this because if you scan over to, we're still in chapter 8, but look over to verse 19, the angel Gabriel actually explains this to him. So 8.19, he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Okay? So, like, I just don't want you to think, like, man, Pastor Dave just, like, kind of knows all this stuff, or he's got secret books that tell him all this stuff. It's right there. Okay? Gabriel tells him, this is the Media persian army. You overlay that with seven, overlay that with, with chapter two. It's kind of... Like, that becomes sort of obvious, all right? And so this is the media Persian army. Then let's see what happens next. Verse 5, chapter 8. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. All right, pause there. So the next kingdom, again, comes after Persia. Are we with me? It's Greece, right? So who's the goat? Greatest of all time. We're not talking about Tom Brady. We're not talking about Michael Jordan. We're talking about Alexander the Great, all right? He was great. And so that's not how he was using it, but I just think that's kind of fun. Um, but actually, the goat was a symbol for the Greeks. Um, there's this, this kind of story. This is like bonus material. I didn't tell the nine this, but um, or the 830 this. This is, um, uh, there is this goat that supposedly kind of they followed, and this is where the, uh, uh, the Greek uh, sort of cities and then which grew into the empire began. Uh, Bri and I have actually got the opportunity to go onto the Aegean Sea next to Greece. It's 
the goat sea is what that means. So goats are actually kind of a symbol of Greece. And so, again, this is 200 years before this happens. Daniel is getting this vision of what is going to happen. See, this is why commentators look at this and they're like, there is no way that this date is accurate. For sure this was written after the time because of how accurate it was. And it goes on, it says, he, saw, he came to the ram, which he saw standing on the bank, and he ran at him with his powerful wrath, and he saw him close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, struck the ram, broke his horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. He cast him down to the ground, trampled on him. So this is like Animal Planet stuff, kind of like, you know, just picture all this. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. And the goat, Alexander the Great, became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Amazing, right? And here's the thing. We sometimes get a little bit intimidated when we come across this sort of image language, right? We read about these beasts, these kind of animals, and this kind of thing, and it, it just seems foreign to us. But what I would love to do is just kind of maybe, maybe encourage you that it's not as foreign as you might think. It's only foreign to us because, again, we don't think about the winged lion you know, that represents Babylon. We don't think about the goat that represents uh, the, the Greeks. Um, but we have our own symbols, right? I think all of you probably at some point in your life maybe played for a sports team, went to a school that had a mascot, right? So let's just kind of shout it out. What is your favorite mascot that you've been? Everyone all at once, go ahead. What's your mascot? Yeah, you catch all that? Okay, so you know what it is. Here's mine. I went, to, I went to high school in Monroe. I was a cheesemaker, all right? Now, I know, I know here in Wisconsin that plays like a little bit, sort of. I think it kind of just still gets made fun of here in Wisconsin. I'll tell you, you tell people in Chicago that you were a cheesemaker, or you tell people in North Carolina, yeah, I was a cheesemaker in high school, they will like, what? Like nothing evokes fear in the hearts of your enemies, right? Like, like, like this very like a studious guy sort of stirring a pot like of cheese, you know? It's like, we are the cheesemakers. You know, it's like, that's not doing anything for it, but that's what our mascot was, right? So it doesn't mean anything to them. They're like, why are you the cheesemakers? And it's like, well, it's this whole thing. Like, it's like, they're kind of proud of their cheese. They got like, <laughs> they got Limburger. They got, like, it's like this whole thing, right? And so it makes sense there, but outside of the context, it doesn't. So for us, again, just, just to kind of put it into perspective, this would have had a little bit more um, sort of sticking power for, uh, for Daniel. It's not all that uncommon to use symbols to represent people, you know, organizations, countries, kingdoms, that sort of thing. Well, here's where it gets really interesting, right? We said, we said that, that God holds and directs, he knows and directs our past, present, and our future. Here is one of the kind of things that I found when I was studying this that I had never heard before, but it is so incredible. So we said Alexander the Great, let's just kind of zero in on him for a second. His parents died when he was young. He took the throne when he was 20 years old. And from the time he was born till the time when he took the throne, his parents has raised him with this ambition of taking over the Persian army. And so he picked up the mantle that his parents, that his dad had in that, and he was going to kind of go after the Persians and extend this, 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 um, this empire. Well, when he was 20, he actually had a vision that somebody came to him, a man came to him in a dream, and told him, now is the time for you to begin your conquest over the Persians. And he saw it as this divine sort of sign that he needed to go. 
And so he, that's when he began his conquest. And so he's moving from country to country, place to place, kind of overtaking with incredible speed. I mean, his uh, military uh, savvy was, was beyond. It was like untouchable. Like, I mean, they were, the, the, the techniques that they were using, the, the, the weapons that they were doing, all of that, if you've ever studied it, it's just, it's fascinating. Um, he had like kind of this crazy mind for war unlike any other. Well, here's what happens is they get to Israel and um, just to kind of back up a little bit, the Persian, under the Persian Empire, the Israelites were allowed to leave and go back to the land of Israel and to begin to rebuild their civilization, namely the temple, right? So we see that Zerubbabel um, uh, brought some people back. Uh, Nehemiah, we studied that a few years ago as a church. They built the walls. And then you have Ezra going back and then reforming the temple. So under the Persian Empire, the temple was reformed. So now enter Alexander the Great coming to Jerusalem. The high priest doesn't want what happened before. He doesn't want the temple worship to stop. And so they are trying to like kind of go on the offensive and greet him in a certain way. And so he dons this purple sort of robe, and then the rest of the priests don these kind of white robes that they would have used under like kind of typical uh, uh, sacrifice and, and kind of as they're doing their, their temple duties, and they go out to greet Alexander the Great. See, this was recorded for us by Josephus, the historian. If you've ever heard of Josephus, he was like kind of the known historian. He lived just after the time of Jesus. Um, I think it's estimated that he was born in 37 AD, so it may have overlapped just a touch by um, Jesus, but, but that, that um, he was a historian. So Josephus records this event where Alexander the Great came to Israel. And Josephus records that he upon coming to Jerusalem, was greeted by the high priest along with the other priests. And when seeing the high priest wearing purple, he said to him, you are the man that was in my vision. You were the one who appeared. I've never seen you before, but you appeared to me in that dream. And you were the one who told me to begin my conquest over Persia. And then the high priest took him in. It says he took him into the temple, and he opened up scripture, and he opened to Daniel, and he showed him in Daniel, it would have been in chapter seven, chapter eight, this is where it talks about the Greeks overtaking the Persians. I mean, in, in chapter eight, it says, the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. That's 821. So, so, so Alexander the Great was shown the book of Daniel and said, this is about you. This is about the conquest that you are doing. You are the great king here. And, and, and the next day he went back and he says, what do you want from me? Is there a request that you would have for me? And they requested that they were able to continue to worship in the way that they had been. And Alexander the Great greeted that. And so under the Greek rule, the Israelites were allowed to continue to worship at the temple and sacrifice as they had. Isn't that crazy? Like I was like, What? Are you kidding me? Like there's this vision and then he shows this. And again, this is why like those that are skeptical would say there is no way that this was written before because it's so specific and there's so much that you have a couple hundred years before God is showing Daniel exactly what he's gonna do is he moves around and directs kings and kingdoms to prepare for what he was doing on the earth. See, when I read this and when I saw this, I was just, I was blown away at how incredible the wisdom, the knowledge, the direction of God is. And you know what? Sometimes, sometimes I think, I think we forget that. And it's just a good check on our reality, a good reminder of perspective that God is before time and he's after time. 
before our past. He is present in our current reality, and he is working in and on our future. And so that is what he's showing back. He's pulling back the curtain. He's allowing Daniel to see exactly what was going on. You know, I can't help but think, you know, we, we just looked at all these great stories about Daniel, right? When he walks into that party and he interprets for Belshazzar the writing that was on the wall. <laughs> well, you see the confidence, right? And the courage that he had. Well, imagine this. Daniel had already seen, again, it was the first and third year of King Belshazzar. He had already seen and been given this vision by the Lord. So when he walks in, he knows exactly what's happening. He sees that writing. He's like, I already had a vision about this. You're going to be overthrown by the Persians and the Medes. It's going to happen tonight, right? Like Daniel knew that God was over the past, present, and future, and he's watching it come to life. And so there was for sure courage in his mind at that moment. I would furthermore say that that's where that courage came from as he stood up and continued to pray to his God despite the rule or edict that was given by uh, Darius to not pray to his God. He's like, why would I pray to some lesser king that's just going to be overthrown? I'm praying to the God that is over all kings, and I'm praying to the true God. And so if it means that I'm going to the lions, okay, but I cannot bow to some false God that is not truly God. God is before, and he's working in, and he is going to continue to work in the future. He knows and holds it, and he is directing it. That's the first thing that I think we need to walk away from and see this morning. Let's continue on. Let's go back to chapter seven, okay? So just want to make sure we're all together. We still here? Still got it? Haven't lost you yet? All right. Some of you are like, you're here for this. You are like, man, I was so excited for the prophecy. And you're, uh, oh man, I know you're nerding out on this. So this is great. We're in this together, you and me. All right. Verse eight of chapter seven. Let's go back to those horns. Remember the horns that came up from the fourth beast. It says, behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which the first, the th- uh, three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, this horn um, were uh, eyes like the eyes of a man. So in the horn, there were eyes like the eyes of a man and the mouth speaking great things. So you have this mouthy horn, okay? And it's not like great things, like he's telling like super fun things to hear. It's like bold things, like obnoxious things, loud things, like aggressive things is kind of the the meaning of that. And Daniel is kind of zeroes in on this horn. He's like, so again, fast forward up to the interpretation. So chapter um, seven, verse 19, he says, then I desire, desire to know the truth about the forest beasts. So he said, yeah, what's this mean? Chapter seven, verse 19, what's this mean? He says, these are four kingdoms. He's like, yeah, but what about that fourth one? It was exceedingly terrifying. And this teeth and an iron and claw of browns, which devoured the, the, the broken pieces and stamped was left with its feet. And then the 10 hordes were on its head and the other horn that came up and the three, you know, he's kind of, kind of recounting all of it. Verse 21, as I looked, this horn, this little mouthy horn, uh, made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came. And then judgment was given. For the saints of the Most High, the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall rise, another shall rise after. He shall be different from the former ones and he shall put down three things. So there's a unique king that's gonna be rising out of the Roman Empire. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. He shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times 
and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment. His dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the peoples of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him, the ancient of days, right? And so here is, I think, the second truth that we can walk away from this morning. It's this. The spirit of the Antichrist has been and will be working to oppose God. What we're seeing here, again, God is pulling back the curtain for Daniel and then thus for us. And what we're getting to see a picture in is something that we don't often think about. But it's this, is that there is a spiritual war that is raging. It has been raging and is continuing to rage to this day. The spirit of the Antichrist has been and will be working to oppose God. So this is, most would agree, that this little horn is a picture of something that is far off, yet to come. It's the Antichrist. And and it's just what the word is, Antichrist. It's against Christ. And someone someday is gonna raise up against Christ to try and overthrow. He's gonna make war, not just against the saints, but against the dominions, against the principalities, against God himself. There's this war that is going to be raged here, but we know the outcome. We know the future in that. I said at the beginning, these prophecies are given with a near and a far interpretation. Let's see the near interpretation. That's what we get in chapter eight. All right, so chapter eight, verse nine. Here's kind of the overlapping piece. Again, I think this is just a good way to do it, to kind of jump back and forth. I know it takes a little legwork, but you got it. Keep flipping those pages. I love hearing the sound. So chapter eight, verse nine. You there? Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars, it threw to the ground and trampled on them. Again, you see this cosmic war being raged. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, and the regular burnt offering, because of the transgression, and it will be throw truth on the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, the giving over of the sanctuary, and the host to be trampled underfoot? It's like, that sounds bad. How long is that going to happen? And he said, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. This isn't original to me, but, but one of the most helpful kind of pictures that I've, I've seen or kind of come across as it comes to uh, uh, prophecy is the idea, if you've ever kind of like, you know, seen mountains, sometimes when you see mountain peaks, it kind of looks like there's kind of two peaks together, right? And they kind of overlap, and it's hard to tell how much distance there is between them. And sometimes there's even like multiple peaks between them. And so what we're seeing here is we're, we're seeing this reality, so people uh, will look at this now, and we kind of look back and connect the dots, right? It grew out of Rome this Antichrist. And what, what, what this is often said, or what commentators will agree, is that this small horn here in chapter 8 is um, actually Antiochus. Um, uh, Antigu- <laughs> I cannot say it. I kept saying it wrong in the first service too. Antiochus. I need to like put the phonetic in my, in my notes. But Antiochus is the Roman ruler who came into Jerusalem, and this is known as the abomination of desolation. He overthrew Jerusalem. He had some, um, you know, uh, 20,000 troops 
80,000 Jews were killed as he overtook Jerusalem. He marched to the temple, erected an altar to the, the false god Zeus, and actually took a swine, which would have been an unclean animal, sacrificed it on the altar there at the temple, took the word of God out into the streets, threw it on the ground, and actually trampled it. Again, all of this was prophesied right here. It says that the word of God was taken and it was trampled on, that he's making war against the stars. Oftentimes the stars are, are heavenly beings, they're, they're angels. And you see that he's speaking against, and it says, how long is this going to happen? And again, not to kind of geek out on too much on the timelines, but that 2,300, if you sort of take it, and there's a couple ways you can interpret it, but if you ter- interpret it as evenings and mornings, so that would be 1,150 days, that's a little over three years, there was actually the time from when Antiochus took, um, uh, Antiochus took office or took a kind of um, uh, his, his throne and then marched in, overthrew that to the time when they returned the temple back. Because I don't know if you know what happened to Antiochus, but he, um, he actually had this kind of crazy bowel thing where he just like kind of fell over dead. And, and, and God like, and it says that it was like not done by the hands of man. Like, like he was overthrown and, and he died and then they took back the temple and the lights returned to the temple. Do you know what that celebration is that celebrates that day when that returned, when worship returned to the temple? It's still celebrated today. That's Hanukkah. So Hanukkah is actually when the Jewish people celebrate that worship returned after it was taken away. And it was just about three years after he took off. I mean, it's incredible kind of the timing of all of this and how it all worked. But here's the important thing for us today, and here's what I think we need to understand, is that the spirit of the Antichrist is, has been, and will be working to oppose God. What do we mean by that? So you have this near interpretation, this this Roman king that's coming to oppose God. And I believe this, that there always has been and there always will be uh, people, and I would go, and, and even beyond that, in the spiritual world, there are things, beings that are, actively opposing the most high God. And here you have this, this kind of like exceedingly, it says like terrifying, right? Dreadful, this, this, this spirit about, about the Antichrist that is so against God. And it seems to not just be war, waging war on a human level, but on the spiritual level altogether. And I think this is so good for us to be reminded of, church, because sometimes... In many situations, there is this spiritual reality that we fail to see, right? How many times do you see injustice or you see um, pain that's being inflicted by others? And sometimes it's even on like a, a massive scale. I mean, think about some of the most tyrannical rulers that we know of. Even in recent days, you have like Stalin, like Hitler, like, I mean, hundreds, thousands, millions of people being killed by, by rulers or people. Like, there is the spirit of the Antichrist that is at work in our world today. And listen, we are missing it if we look at it and we just think that this is just a physical, temporal thing and it's just people being people. There is a spirit that is actively working to oppose the Ancient of Days at all times. And someday, and we don't have time to kind of get into it now, but that's what chapter seven is all about. Someday it's gonna culminate into the Antichrist. But I think what we need to realize this morning is that the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist is at work in our world at all times. It is there today. The Antichrist is trying to destroy. And so, so many times if you see destruction around you, 
is the spirit of the Antichrist at work in our world today. There's deceit, right? False thinking, false understanding, particularly about God and who he is and what he's instructed. And there is dissent, right? An opposition to the very will and working of God. We see this throughout time. And it's present today. And that is what God is making sure that Daniel understands and knows. And 1 John 2.18, it says this, Children, it is the last hour that you have heard the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour, right? The New Testament talks about these many Antichrists that have come. And so first, or 2 Thessalonians tells us to not be deceived, for the day is coming and rebellion is going to come first, and this is all going to be revealed. And so there is this day coming when that is going to, there is going to be a multiple, it's going to rise up against, but let's make sure, again, the end is already written. It says that that, that power will be given away, that, that the court shall sit in judgment, the dominion of this mouthy horn will be taken away, and he will be consumed and destroyed to the end, and the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the peoples of the saints, that is, those who are in Christ Jesus, of the Most High, and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all his dominions shall serve him and shall obey him. He will be on the throne. All right? It is not this big kind of like nail-biter of who's going to win in the end. We know who is going to win in the end. But we have to understand, church, that there is this spirit of the Antichrist at work in our world even today. That is one of the takeaways that I believe God wants us to have here uh, this morning. Let's continue on, because it gets even better. This last point is quick, I promise. But look at this. We, we, cannot, we cannot check out yet. So you gotta, if, the, if you've been like, you know, get back on the train right here, all right? Hang on for the last little bit. Chapter 7, verse 9. Check this out. We skipped right over this. He saw this mouthy horn rise up. Verse 9, it says this. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. This is an image. It wasn't God himself, but it was a, a picture of God. For Daniel, he took his seat on the throne. Notice the description. His clothing was white like snow. That represented his purity, his holiness. His hair, the hair of his head was pure, like pure wool. It was his wisdom, right? You see someone with white hair, you assume that they have some wisdom. He has wisdom, but check out his throne. It was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire. So it's like a, it's like a wheeled throne. It can go places. It can do things. Like God's not bound and stuck in some place far off. Like he can drive this thing. And there's like fire tracks behind him. This is incredible. And then verse 10, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him and thousands and thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. This is the picture, right? And, and, and write this down. The ancient of days has been and will be on the throne. And all of these beasts, right, all of the, the kind of overturn of these kingdoms and kings and all these powers and principalities raising up and, and chaos ensuing, the Ancient of Days is on his throne. And the image that Daniel gets to see is the sea of angels serving, right? Thousands and thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, the myriad of heavenly beings at the beckoning call of the Ancient of Days, worshiping, glorifying, serving, working on behalf of him. And more than that, court is in section. God is judging all man, every man, woman, child that has lived and every act that has happened. And the book is opened and every injustice is set right. 
because the ancient of days is on the throne. He says in verse 11, I look because the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, right? So the horn just kind of still doing its thing, right? And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. God is on the throne. And this is the picture, listen, church, that we have. And one of the things that's going to help you to understand and interpret and apply prophecy is you have to understand that it is written with the perspective of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, as the central figure, right? You can study history in different ways. Many of you, I'm assuming you took U.S. history, all right? The title gives it away of how or what you study. You didn't just study all history. You studied specifically U.S. history. And in that class or in that kind of seminar, whatever it was, you studied kind of what led to the U.S., what's happened since, all that. It's all kind of through the filter, through the lens of the U.S. history, all right? You have to understand that the Bible is like Jesus history, okay? It's all of what is leading up to what happens during the time of Jesus and then what happens as a result. Jesus is the central figure of our Bibles. And so this will help you so much is that if you read this prophecy, you're like, well, why is he talking about these four beasts? Right? Why is he talking about these four kingdoms? The question that you can ask is, well, what does that tell us about Jesus? How does it help prepare the way for Jesus? And listen, church, I was blown away when I saw this this week. These four kingdoms paved the way for the Son of Man to come to the earth. Babylon, right, was the place and point of discipline for the people of God. It showed them their need for a savior, Right? They had been unable to turn themselves around and to return to the Lord, and so he had to discipline them. But then what happens with Persia? We already said it. They get to return to the, to the land of Israel, and what is reestablished? The worship of the temple. It was prophesied before Jesus came that he was going to come, and he was going to stand at the temple, and that was going to be a place that he was going to teach, that he was going to work. So the temple had to be in place. So during the Persian, they were allowed to return, and they were allowed to rebuild and begin worshiping at the temple again. And then what happens next? What happens as a result of a vision to a young 20-year-old on the far uh, western part of the known world? He takes over the Persian Empire. And then establishing the Grecian Empire, what happens as a result of Greece? What's the biggest contributing factor that they gave to uh, the world at the time? It would have been that standard language, right? It was the language of Greek. It, was, it united the world around the Greek language. And so even our New Testament was written in Greek so that everybody could read it. There was this kind of shared language between it because what happens when Rome takes over, they keep the language of the Greek. And so they're, they're writing and kind of conversing and doing everything in Greek. They keep that, but then what does the Romans contribute to it? It's peace and it's a roadway. There was now the ability to move as had never been before between all of the known world. And what is moving between all of the known world? The message of a savior, the son of man, who's come, born as a man, lived a life as a man, died on a cross and raised from the grave so that man may be set free from their sin. Do you see it now? Do you see what Daniel is getting a picture of? The, 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 the table is being set, right? Everything. We can look back now from our vantage point. We can see how each of those kingdoms and kingdoms contributed to the very coming of Jesus Christ. And we get this amazing picture in verse 13. He says, I saw in night visions, I'm in chapter seven, 
Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came like a son of man. Jesus referred to himself. It was one of his favorite descriptions of himself. Son of man. There came like one of the son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And check this out. All the peoples, all the nations, and all the languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Remember the rock that comes down that bursts and smashes all the other empires in chapter two? This is that rock. It is the son of man coming on the clouds, receiving his dominion, his authority. And all of it is leading up to this. It all points to Jesus. How amazing is our God, right? And when you see it, when you see history through that lens of how did it lead up to the time of Jesus, how has it changed since, it gives us a greater picture. I said at the beginning, I wanted you to walk away with one thing. Jesus is awesome. He's awesome. And listen, this is the truth of the gospel. This is what was carried in the language of Greek on those Roman roads, church. It is this, that we are sinners and we are in need of a savior. We need a reconciled, restored relationship with the God of the universe. And in his holiness, in his perfection, and in his wisdom, he made a way. He sent his son, Jesus, to be killed on a Roman cross, to shed his blood so that the forgiveness of sin could be satisfied because the son of man, the ancient of days, was there in that place taking on our sin for himself. That was the message that went forth. This is the message of the gospel. This is what we've been invited into. And listen, church, when we get this, when we understand this, this makes a difference for our life today. We are a part of something so much bigger, so much bigger, right? So many times I think we just need to pan out, pan back and see what's happening. And that's what God was doing for Daniel opening the curtain saying, Daniel, let me show you what is going on. There is a cosmic battle which is raging, raging and I am the victor. I am gonna put all things right. I'm calling all people to myself. I'm calling every nation to myself. I'm calling every language to myself that all should serve rightfully me. This is what God is saying to Daniel. It's incredible. This church should move us to worship. This should stir in our hearts. Right? This is the reason that we sing, because we're just rehearsing for what is going to be all of eternity, praising the ancient of days, the one who is on the throne, the one who is over it all. Is this not amazing? It's incredible. Our God is so good. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks. We give you praise for who you are in this place this morning. And God, you are, you have been, you will be the same yesterday, today, forever. God, you are over and working in all things And so, Lord, we acknowledge our, God, our short-sighted thinking. So many times we think about things in the here and now and the temporal, but, God, you have the eternal in mind. Lord, you are working all things out. God, thank you that you are present and that you are loving. God, that you are good, that you are the righteous judge. And, God, that you will not judge us according to our works, God, but your word says, those who are in Christ Jesus, you will judge according to the works of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for the gospel truth, the good news that was carried, God, that we have received. And God, would anyone, anyone who 
is here this morning who has not yet received the blessing, the gift, God of a right relationship with the ancient of days, would they receive it fully knowing that it is found in Jesus? There's no other name by which we may be saved. There's no other name under heaven or on earth, God, that is worthy of our praise except for the name of Jesus. And so we worship you here in this place, God. We declare that you are over all things. God, you have dominion. You have authority. Would you have that in our life? We give you the place, the rightful place of the throne of our hearts. God, we do this now in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.